Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. as bad as you might think he is based on how he ran Spirit Airlines. No, he's worse. Ben Baldanza, the former CEO of that airline who now teaches about how airlines work. And how do you call yourself an expert in an industry when you never actually work in the industry? Well, you follow it from when you're really young, meet all the great people in the industry, follow all the reports that come out, and you turn into Seth Kaplan, NPR's here now transportation analyst. Are, Are you calling yourself a great person in the industry, Ben? (laughs) <laughs> we're excited about you. <laughs> Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Uh, we're going to talk about emotional support animals, whether they're really addressing emotional baggage or just baggage charges. We'll discuss what happens when you pay for a window seat and are stuck looking at a brick wall instead or something like that anyway. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. The U.S. Department of Transportation wants to allow airlines to refuse to accommodate passengers who want to carry emotional support animals. Uh, They would still have to allow and not charge for trained service dogs who help the blind and so forth. We're not talking about that. But my emotional support poisonous snake, for example, who travels with me uncaged every time I fly and has done so ever since I learned I wouldn't have to pay as long as I have a note from a doctor saying how much she means to me. An airline would be allowed, although not required, to tell me she will have to find a different way to get to Disney World, and I'll have to fend for myself without all her support. Now, Ben, surely there are animals in the world who aren't trained service animals but do address serious, legitimate mental health needs. This seems like a case of some people taking advantage of a loophole and ruining it for everyone else. I think that's exactly what it's a case of. It's the least hidden secret in the airline industry that if you want to carry your pet for free, you call it an emotional support animal and the airline has to let you on and let you on for free. Or some people have brought on emotional support peacocks or like you said, poisonous snakes or pigs. <laughs> I, I or, made that one up, but, but, there's or, some that are, but there have been real ones that are barely any more ridiculous than that. That's exactly less right. less ridiculous, I should say. But I have to say that I really do support this rule because the people who behave and the people who follow the rules understand that they get a certified kind of container for their animal that fits under a seat. They tell the airline it's coming. The airline prepares for it. They pay the fee, which might be 75, 100 bucks, and the animal goes with them. And most of those people are no problem at all. It's the ones who say, I'm going to always get my pet on for free and use this big loophole. There are those who have been quoted in the paper on this saying that the loophole using people are really a fringe and not that relevant. But I don't think it is fringe. If you talk to airline operators and you talk to airport people, they will tell you this stuff happens all the time. 
And I think this is a case of the DOT regulation being overreaching before, which says anyone who wants to bring on anything and claim it's for their emotional sport, the airlines must accept. That was the current law. And what they're changing it to say is airlines, you decide. You don't have to take something for emotional support if you don't want to, but if you want to, go ahead. And my guess is, is we're going to see some airlines that get really strict on this and say no emotional support animals at all. And some that trying to attract a broader range will say we'll be a little more flexible with you. Yeah, I have to say it amazes me because I mean I I, I might have told the story on, a, on an early episode in a different context, but when when we moved from Fort Lauderdale to Washington, you know, we have three cats, and I researched okay what's what's the best way to to transport them. I ended up picking in my case JetBlue, which has a pretty good program for pets. There can only be three cabin pets on a whole flight, so I had to find a flight, and you know they serve the market nonstop. That's that that, that was one criterion. So it was either them or Southwest or, or American at the time. But uh, they served the market nonstop. Oh, so I had to find a flight that, that had no pets already booked on it because I was going to take all three slots. And I paid $100, I think it was, for each cat at the time, $300. And it never occurred to me to try to cheat. You know, and we had to bring because it was just my wife and our at the time toddler traveling. We had, we had to recruit two more adults to travel with the kid <laughs> and the and the extra cat uh, to fly up with us. You're so and, ethical, Seth. Well, but it, it, it just <laughs> never occurred to me. I don't want to show up at the airport and have a problem. I don't want to be lying to people. You know, there, there's just I don't know. You know, you're you're an example for your kid. It, it just, but I guess that's just it, that, that's just not how how everybody is. I do feel bad because I know that there are people out there again who aren't you know, blind and don't have a service dog, but probably really do have, I, I think there really is such a thing as an emotional support animal. You know, I know there are therapy dogs that go into hospitals and do great work and all that sort of stuff. So I feel bad for those people if they're going to get caught up in this, but I think you're right. This seems to be a widespread thing. And, and it seems like most of the ostensible emotional support animals are just people cheating. Well, and let me tell you how widespread it is. If you just Google fly your pet for free or fly my pet for free, the first thing that comes up is emotional support animals and how to register them. The second one is fly your pet for free. My pet search $139 in stock, right? So even if you don't know this loophole, but you're just saying, I want to take my pet. How can I do it for free? Google tells you use this loophole. Yeah, so that really tells you something right there. So yeah, That's too exactly bad for right. the legitimate people, but in this case, it, it does seem like the right thing to do. Not just to to stop incentivizing cheating, but also from from a safety standpoint. When you have these these reports of you know cabin animals biting people and and Seth, you need to know too that a lawyer friend of mine and I have always thought it would be great to really press this system and me travel with him and claim him as my emotional support animal, saying that I'm just not comfortable traveling without my lawyer and, and see <laughs> and see what happened. <laughs> And I'm sure there are people who would make jokes that I would never make about whether lawyers should qualify as that and so forth. But <laughs> or, I would or, or another human being, even. I mean, it's far too many mistake, why not another human being? Well, flights by Emirates to the U.S. have been making unplanned refueling stops ever since Iran shot down that Ukraine International 737-800 on its way to Kiev, killing 176 people. This according to CH Aviation, citing flight radar 24 data. 
Now, Emirates actually continues serving Tehran itself, uh, but because of regional tensions, it's been rerouting some of its flights from Dubai and for really long flights to a few cities in the U.S. That has meant refueling stops or tech stops, as airlines call them. First, a flight to Houston had to stop in Toronto, then a flight to Dallas, Fort Worth stopped in Stockholm, a flight to Los Angeles stopped in Copenhagen. Routes to places like Chicago and New York are shorter and haven't had to stop. Ben, Back to the tragedy itself for a moment. In early January, the downing of Flight 752, I want to ask you a couple of lingering questions. First, how likely is something like that to happen elsewhere in the world? I mean, Iran isn't the only country in the world with surface-to-air missiles that doesn't get along with every other country in the world. Well, that's right, Seth. And I think this was a real mistake and I don't know that it would happen in most of the other rest of the world. It certainly wouldn't happen in North America, South America, Western Europe, I don't think at all. Somebody in the government of Iran gave that plane clearance to take off. The fact that the military of Iran didn't know that is the problem because not only should the person with the button on the missile have not wondered what that object was, they should have absolutely been expecting that object to be there because minutes before it had been cleared by another part of the government to take off. So that communication link is very strong in the United States. I can promise you when your Southwest Airlines flight takes off from Orlando, there are people in the U.S. military who know that that plane just took off and who knows it's there and knows to expect the flight path it's taking. And so I think this was a case of how broken and how dysfunctional that government is. Now, there are other broken and dysfunctional governments on the world. So would it happen in a place, for example, like Somalia or somewhere else that is also known to be sort of have difficult sort of government issues right now, yeah. maybe it would. So I guess I'd be careful flying in some places, but I don't think anybody flying in the US, Canada, North America, South America, Europe should be worried that on takeoff, the military of that country is likely to shoot them down. Yeah. And I remember how Iran refused to send the black boxes to the US for NTSB investigators and maybe Boeing to review. Okay, that's Iran, maybe no surprise. But Ethiopia also refused to hand over to 737 MAX black boxes directly to American interests because they didn't trust that an investigation would be unbiased. And you know, I have to say, some people who read that New York Times piece last week about uh, kind of revisiting the Turkish Airlines 737 crash back in 2009 might say Ethiopian might have had a point. Uh, what I want to ask you, Ben, though, is this a trend, the idea of keeping black boxes away from the Americans? And if so, should we worry about it? It may be a trend from some countries. And I don't know that we should worry about it as long as they go somewhere that's objective and capable. I think the world should be aligned that when an airplane crashes, that the world should understand why that happened and how do we not let it happen, not only there, but anywhere again. And that typically means an investigation and an examination of the information on the black boxes from the airplane. So they don't have to come back to the U.S. necessarily. There are smart people with, with capabilities in, in Europe and in Asia and other parts of the world. I think what I would hate to see 
is when these things happen, people say, we're just going to keep these black boxes ourselves versus turn them over to some independent agency who can do a truly objective job. If politics makes them think that the U.S. can't be objective, then in the short term, I'm okay with that as long as they send it somewhere that can be. And it seems like sometimes some of this is semantics. I mean, look, Iran said, we're going to hand it over to the Ukrainians and then it kind of indicated Iran that says that that they would look the other way in terms of what the Ukrainians then did with the with the information. In the case of Ethiopia, clearly American interests understood what happened there and, and, and were involved in it. The world knows what happened. So I think some of this also is is posturing by these countries, knowing full well that in the end, the information's going to get to where it has to get to. That's right, I think. And uh, that's the important thing. When a plane crashes anywhere in the world, the world community should want to understand why that happened and how do we not let that happen again? Is it the plane? Is it the crew? Is it the system with which the plane was flying in? What, why, and how so that we don't repeat terrible accidents? Yeah, generally that system has worked pretty well. Uh, Well, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, whether one seat can make the difference between a flight losing or making money. It's that, and then a complaint during fine or wine, where Airlines Confidential is next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, let's hear from a few listeners. First, really more a couple of comments than a question. Uh, This one from Dan in Mooresville, Indiana. Dan writes, loving the podcast. One bit of feedback regarding the tarmac rule discussion. Ben kept saying the pilot this and the pilot that. It would be more proper to refer to both or all in the case of an augmented international crew of three or four pilots, pilots, plural, as each one may have a different duty day limitation in the case of a delayed flight. Uh, It's a commonly made mistake by passengers. He says that the pilot made an announcement about our ETA inferring that there's only one pilot flying the airplane. Let's not put the cart before the horse on that one and keep at least two pilots on board for redundancy and safety. Also, your discussion on eight-hour flights versus 14-hour flights. I totally agree. When we fly U.S. to Europe and are lucky enough to be in business class, I go to sleep right away and dispense with the movies and food in order to arrive refreshed. I have the ability to sleep anywhere at any time, which I realize many folks don't enjoy. Keep up the great work on the show. I always enjoy each episode. Thanks so much for the comments, Dan. And yes, absolutely. The captain, the first officer, but pilots, plural. We'll do our best. We certainly didn't mean to uh, retire the role of one of those important people. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Meanwhile, Seth, PK in London writes, agree with most of what Ben and Seth say about air travel and climate change, except for the comment that fewer flights by frequent travelers won't affect the number of flights. Short-term agree, long-term disagree. Take five to 10 business class travelers off an evening departure JFK to London Heathrow, and that flight is lossy. Yeah, I like that word, lossy. (laughs) And if sustained, in the long term, that flight gets cut, and instead of the convenience of a flight every 30 minutes to London, travelers may have to shudder, wait 60 minutes for the next one. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's like picking on what we said about the idea that if you're not not flying – 
in order to help the environment. We said, you know, whether or not you're on the plane, the flight's going to happen anyway. Uh, PK is making the point that, well, if, if demand really dropped in a big way, then there would be less air travel. Yeah, I'm glad you agree in the short term, PK. I think that's right. Long term, you're probably right, too. Yeah, and the, the open question, obviously, is how big of a deal all of this is in, in the wake of Greta Thunberg and all the rest of it. And, and now a uh, question, this one from Colin in Sharon, Massachusetts. Colin writes, I have read that after all expenses, that a flight's full profit is only equal to one passenger's airfare on that flight. Is this true? Does this include profit from freight on the flight? What about long-haul flights? Thank you. Well, fortunately, I'm joined by Ben Baldanza, who I have a feeling has had some thoughts about about this uh, basic but important airline economics question. Ben, uh, w- what can you tell Colin? Well, thanks. Thanks, Seth. And thank you, Colin. You've um, only spent your whole career doing this. <laughs> well, measure, kind of thing. measuring how much money an, a flight makes is a non-trivial thing. I mean, for most businesses, you can say, how much money did I collect? How much, how many bills did I have to pay or how many expenses did I have to pay? And the difference of those is my profit. Hopefully that's a positive number, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> in airlines, that's a little harder to do because passengers might be flying from well, to use uh, PKs from New York to London, (laughs) but they may have connected on a flight from Charlotte or Chicago. And once they get to London, they may be going on to Amsterdam or Brussels and they bought that ticket for the whole thing. So how much of their ticket do you count just for the New York London piece of it? In general, passenger revenue is only one source of revenue that goes into the airline's measurement of profitability. They will look at all the ticket revenue that they think would go away if that flight didn't happen. So that might be the tickets in the case we've been using here of somebody who buys from New York to London. But even if they went from Charlotte to Amsterdam using New York, London, they might even count close to all of that or maybe some piece of that for New York, London. They will also look at what airlines call ancillary revenue. So what did people pay for maybe meals on board or check baggage or seat assignments or things like that. They will absolutely look at cargo, which is especially wide body, longer haul airlines usually put cargo in the airplanes and they'll look at all of that revenue. And against that, they will measure all the expenses of flying the flight, which includes some allocation of the cost of owning that airplane, maintaining that airplane, certainly paying the crew, the fuel, the fees that the airports charge at each end and things like that. So and even just and even just overhead for the air for the airline, right? I mean this the CEO's salary is divided up among all the all the operations, right? Yeah, it's when usually, you're talking about like it's a usually, fully allocated profit or loss. Yeah. That's right. And and that's why airlines tend to look at profitability on a couple different levels. Did it cover just the cash that the airline put out to fly the flight that day? Did it actually contribute to the overhead of the airline? Did it actually pay for the CEO salary and all these? And airlines will sort of look at profitability on a couple different levels, depending on what the answer is. The answer is, do we add another frequency? Do we cut one frequency? Do we kill the flight altogether? Do we close a city? Those, the depending on the question asked, might result in a different measurement of profitability. I actually wrote an article on that that was published. And um, in terms of how to think about that, people can find that online if they're really that nerdy and want to do it. Okay. But it's actually a real interesting part of the airline finance function. 
to understand what flights make money and what flights don't. I indirectly worked for the CEO of Northwest Airlines years ago, John Dasberg, who famously said the easiest way to stop losing money is to stop doing things that lose money. And and people laughed at that, <laughs> but, but it was brilliant. But it sort of presumes that the business knows what activities it does that actually make money and don't. It's a real important thing for airlines to know what flights are making money, which ones aren't, so they can make the right decisions about how to deploy their airplanes. Unlike a hotel, which you build in one place and never moves, the fact that an airline can move gives airlines a lot of advantage to keep the airline profitable by continually to deploy it in places where it can be profitable for the airline. Right. All the hotel can do is sort of play with pricing to try to maximize profits, whereas the airline can actually move its assets. Its most important assets are are, are very mobile. We see them flying overhead. Where can we find that article that you mentioned, Ben? How, which, what should we Google if we want to find the article that you wrote? Was that like a LinkedIn piece or something? Um, so let me do airline flight profitability measurement. I'm putting that in Google right here and see if it comes up. Uh yeah, actually, it comes up as the very first thing on Google if you put in oh, airline flight profitability that. measurement, which I'm very surprised about. Okay, it's, excellent. It's, and maybe <laughs> put, put in Baldanza also just uh, just in case. Congratulations. Yeah, well, it, it, it's actually posted there by a place called the ITU Institute, but it's actually a PDF of the article that I wrote a number of years ago. So that, that's okay. kind of fun. I didn't even know and, that it did that. And just to close the loop here, come back to Colin's question about whether one passenger's airfare often makes the difference, whether the, the, the profit of the whole flight is equal to one passenger's airfare, just from a percentage basis. Uh, would you say that that's often true for airline? I mean, it sounds reasonable. We know a lot of airlines are, if they're profitable at all, they run single digit operating margins. Is, is that in your experience? I mean, I would say probably Spirit, it was more than that, right? Because of the margins that Spirit ran. But is that possible that a lot of airlines are, are earning a profit equal to only one passenger's airfare on a flight? I think most airlines earn a little more than that. They do earn more than that. And, and as Colin, I'm sure, knows, people pay different prices for the flight based on when they buy the ticket and uh, how far in advance and where they're sitting on the plane, if they're in business class versus coach or something like that, especially on a long haul flight. So I think it's more than that. The industry average margins right now are around 8%. And so if you take 8% of all the revenue the airline collects, I don't think there's any one person on the plane paying that much. So I think it's a, it's yeah. more like a couple of people. It might be just a few people in business class on a long haul flight, but that sure. might equal sort of, you know, a dozen or so people in coach. Right. And 8%, Ben, that's globally you're talking. Right? Yeah, that's right. Globally. That's right. Yeah. If for people listening in the U.S., the U.S. right now, and this is very different from, let's say, more than a decade ago, the U.S. leads the world. So uh, U.S. profit margins are are considerably uh, considerably higher than that, I, I think, sort of low double digits, somewhere somewhere above. Uh, it's all because of the charges for the bags. 10%. That's right. And that, <laughs> in turn, is all your fault. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429. And record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, that's 305-379-7429. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, questions, plural, at airlinesplural.confidential.com. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a forum on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent now on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint 
and talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth. This one is from someone who identified themselves only as T from Scottsdale, Arizona. So, so in other words, Mr. T or Mr. T. Yeah, Mr. or Miss T. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so T writes, two times in the past year, I buy window seats to assure I have a view. Both flights had no window next to my seat. A window seat should always come with a window or an alert that a particular seat has no window. This is an interesting one, Ben, and it just gets to the complexities of this business because, you know, in the old days before airlines were charging a lot of people for for seat selection, you would say, well, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, OK, some seats have windows and some don't. But that's kind of interesting. Right. I, I, when I've been in that situation, I've never thought about that, that I was r- ripped off. Right. It's just uh, I got Shame on me for not figuring out which seat didn't have a window. But again, that's usually when I haven't paid for a seat assignment, which I usually don't do. I either <laughs> either you know, I either get it or I just I just uh, take something random. But I can imagine somebody just paid you know twenty four dollars or thirty six dollars or whatever for for a window seat and there's no window and they feel a little ripped off. What do you think? Is that fine or a wine? I'm tossed on this one. I actually think it's kind of fine in a way. I think I think T's got a legitimate complaint in that the industry calls them window seats. Maybe they should be called sidewall seats or, or something like that. <laughs> because if you think about it, the airplane itself has windows spaced at a certain distance. And the way the airline configures its seats in the plane may or may not line up with that. I can tell you, Seth, that I've had... Agita, good Italian word that I learned from my mom, on flights (laughs) a few times because maybe the window that is where the sun is shining and annoying me is sort of halfway between me and the seat in front of me. And I worry about, do I have the right to close that shade? Or do I have the right to open that shade? Or is the person yeah. in front going to get mad if I do that? So, <laughs> so, so I usually end up not doing it and just, you know, shading my eyes for a few minutes or something. Yeah. But just the fact that I've had that says that I understand what T's talking about. They don't line up. I know my son loves to sit in window seats and he's gotten yeah. in the position where, well, I know I'm in a window seat, but I can't really see much because the window's actually behind my back shoulder. And that's that's the reality. I would think what T could do is use SeatGuru.com. Now, SeatGuru.com is not a sponsor of the show, but I hope they are someday. And um, <laughs> and and, wait, wait. and SeatGuru is a yeah. site that you can put in the flight you're taking and see, and it tells you these seats are next to the windows and this seat is comfortable and this one doesn't recline. And before you pay your money for the seat, check out SeatGuru and make sure you're getting the window you want and you can protect yourself that way. Yeah, Seat Guru, by the way, part of TripAdvisor, which also is not a sponsor of the show. <laughs> That's <It didn't>. right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but no, but they, they they do great work. I agree. I, I, I go on there and they have all kinds of details, all kinds of little stuff. And there are things that some people, look, everybody values different things, right? So for me, like I said, I think of, when I think of a window seat, that's sort of a, to me, just terminology for seat where I'm against the wall and nobody's going to climb over me to go to the bathroom, but where I have to climb over other people, right? But but some people, the window it, it itself, absolutely. And, and sure, I do prefer to look out the window. For me, I probably wouldn't feel ripped off, but I can't blame 
somebody else for for feeling that way. You know, well, Seth. You know, Seth. Airlines do go so far as to tell you, warning: these seats don't recline because they're in front of a door or something like that. So the yeah. airlines sort of take some responsibility in reminding you that this particular seat might not have all the advantage of the other. I don't know any airline that has done what T wants though. It says this window seat really has a nice window view, and this one doesn't. No, absolutely, and and it's it's worth wondering whether they could integrate what they do more with it. I think there are airlines putting rich content out there where you have a little more knowledge about what you're getting in terms of the product, but not quite there to where you probably shouldn't. Also, if you care a lot about those specifics, go on to another site and, and investigate for yourself. Well, on final approach, now that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelt and ensure your seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 3 305-379-7429. Email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.